You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 112 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. With the last show, we started to set the stage for the Battle of Shiloh, which took place in April 1862 along the banks of the Tennessee River at Pittsburgh Landing, some 23 miles north of the strategic rail hub at Corinth, Mississippi. By April 1862, victorious Union forces had driven the Confederates from Kentucky and most of central and western Tennessee, had raided up the Tennessee River to Florence, Alabama, and were preparing a conquest of the Mississippi. Meanwhile, stung by defeats at Mill Springs and at Forts Henry and Donelson, by the loss of Nashville, and by the evacuation of the Strong Point at Columbus, Kentucky, Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston was determined to reverse the steady string of losses in the West by engaging and defeating the Federals in a decisive battle. To that end, he called up reinforcements from across the Lower South, and he and PGT Beauregard ordered a concentration of Confederate forces at Corinth in northeastern Mississippi. Johnston and Beauregard managed to gather about 42,000 Confederate troops at Corinth, but with two federal armies, each roughly as big as his own, moving south and aiming to link up and then march on the vital rail hub, Albert Sidney Johnston knew that his best chance for victory was to strike first, before the two enemy forces united and outnumbered him by two to one. If Johnston simply sat passively at Corinth, waiting for the federal juggernaut to arrive outside the town, then it was likely the Yankees would use their superior numbers to cut the Memphis and Charleston Railroad both east and west of Corinth, and then maneuver to envelop, trap, and crush the rebel army, with the result that the Confederacy would not only lose the strategic location, but also its main western army as well. Albert Sidney Johnston realized that if he had any hope of preventing that outcome, he would need to seize the initiative, and to do that he would have to take the offensive. Specifically, he would have to try to accomplish the classic military strategy known as defeating the enemy in detail. That is, he needed to strike out at one of the enemy's separate armies and destroy it before then taking on and defeating the other enemy force in the same way. When Sidney Johnston marched north from Corinth in early April 1862 and attempted to execute that strategy, the resulting clash was the two-day Battle of Shiloh. The two Union armies aiming to converge just north of Corinth were led by Ulysses S. Grant and Don Carlos Buell, 
and those two forces were under the overall command of Henry Halleck, who was directing their operations from his departmental headquarters at St. Louis. But once Grant and Buell joined forces, Halleck planned to leave St. Louis and personally take the field, leading the Union steamroller as it made the short march south to Corinth. By taking the field when all was ready, the intensely ambitious Halleck planned to, in a phrase, hog the limelight and make himself the center of attention as his armies seized the strategic rebel rail hub and defeated the Confederates' main western army as well. As you guys will recall, in the aftermath of the Union victories at Forts Henry and Donaldson, Halleck had directed his time and attention to trying to undermine Ulysses S. Grant and gain for himself promotion to command of all federal armies west of the Appalachians. Halleck was successful on both counts. General-in-Chief McClellan gave Halleck permission to remove Grant from command, and President Lincoln agreed to reward Halleck with the top spot in the war's western theater. After sidelining Grant, Halleck had dispatched that army, now under the command of C.F. Smith, up the Tennessee River, and he then ordered Buell to march overland from Nashville with his army and link up with Smith's force just to the north of Corinth. While Buell marched very slowly from Nashville, William Tecumseh Sherman's division led the expedition up the Tennessee. On March 11th, soldiers in blue from the 46th Ohio reached the town of Savannah, on the east bank of the Tennessee, not far from the Mississippi state line. Over the next several days, 80 steamboats arrived at Savannah with the rest of Smith's army. Henry Halleck had designated Savannah as the point from which Smith was to launch operations designed to cut the Mobile and Ohio Railroad north of Corinth and the Memphis and Charleston east of the rail hub. And so Smith had some of his troops disembark at Savannah, about 25 or so miles northeast of Corinth, but he kept the rest of his force aboard the steamboats, ready to journey further upriver and hit the line of the Memphis and Charleston. Sherman's inexperienced 5th Division would be given the task of cutting the Memphis and Charleston, but to break the Mobile and Ohio, Smith chose Lew Wallace's 3rd Division. Wallace was to disembark his men at a place called Crump's Landing, which was on the west bank of the Tennessee between Savannah and a place further upriver called Pittsburgh Landing. Once he disembarked at Crump's, Wallace was to lead the 3rd Division overland to Purdy, Tennessee, about 15 miles due west of Savannah, where he'd run into the tracks of the Mobile in Ohio. Having explained all of this to Wallace, C.F. Smith prepared to return to his headquarters, but as he was climbing into his launch, he stumbled and scraped his shin, ripping a gash from ankle to knee. Lew Wallace urged Smith to have the wound examined at once by a surgeon, but Smith, knowing how much work awaited him back at Savannah, wouldn't delay his departure. Wallace's division duly carried out its assignment, marching from Crump's Landing, reaching Purdy, and destroying a half-mile-long trestle bridge that crossed a swamp north of the town. On his return march to the Tennessee, Wallace positioned one of his brigades at Adamsville, four miles from the river. Another was encamped two miles closer to the Tennessee at a place called Stony Lonesome, and then Wallace brought his last brigade back to Crump's Landing. The next morning, March 14th, Smith received Wallace's report of the complete success of his mission and the lack of rebel opposition, 
and so Smith moved to complete the next of the assignments Halleck had given him, and he ordered Sherman's 5th Division to proceed upriver and break the line of the Memphis and Charleston east of Corinth. Sherman had been itching to go, and within two hours he had his men loaded onto 19 steamboats and headed up the Tennessee. Thirty-five winding miles later, Sherman's flotilla reached the town of Eastport, Mississippi. Unfortunately, Eastport was occupied by Confederate troops. The rebel force was actually only a few cavalry and some artillery, but an opposed landing wasn't part of the Union plans, so Sherman had the transports drop back down the Tennessee a few miles to the mouth of Yellow Creek, where his men were put ashore. But by that time it was raining cats and dogs, and it was a challenge even to get one brigade ashore. Nevertheless, Sherman managed to lead it about four and a half miles inland before the rain, deep mud, and an unfordable creek stymied his efforts to advance any further. After slogging back to the river, it was only with considerable difficulty that Sherman's men managed to get back aboard the steamboats. Sailing back downstream on the rapidly rising river, Sherman encountered the transports bearing Stephen Hurlbut's 4th Division tied up at Pittsburgh Landing, about eight miles below Savannah. The men of the 4th Division were filing off the ships and making their way up the 80-foot bluff that overlooked the river there. Sherman left his division at Pittsburgh Landing, still aboard their transports, while he steamed downriver in his command ship to consult with C.F. Smith at Savannah. Smith directed Sherman to disembark his men at Pittsburgh Landing and encamp a few miles inland so that the rest of the army, when it arrived, would have room to set up their camps between Sherman's position and the river. Once the entire force was assembled at Pittsburgh Landing, it could conduct further operations against the Memphis and Charleston while it awaited Buell's arrival. And so Sherman hurried back up river and disembarked his division. He encamped his four brigades about two and a half miles from the river, while setting up his headquarters at the Little Log Meeting House of Shiloh Methodist Church. Behind the camps of the 5th Division, Hurlbut's men positioned their own camps closer to Pittsburgh Landing. Over the next several days, C.F. Smith's division, now led by W.H.L. Wallace, and John McClernand's division arrived at Pittsburgh Landing, and, like Hurlbut's, encamped close to the landing, behind Sherman's positions. What the soldiers in blue found atop the bluff was a gently rolling plateau cut by deep ravines and streams and covered in woods, except where, here and there, a pioneer farmer had within the past forty years carved out room for a field of cotton, corn, or wheat. On the edges of the fields stood the farmer's cabins. Atop the bluff near the river, a fellow named Pitts Tucker, some fourteen years earlier, had built his cabin and had run a trading post there, dealing largely in whiskey, and he'd lent his name to the steamboat stop, and it became Pittsburgh Landing. One soldier described the place as, quote, three log cabins and a pigsty. End quote. Lew Wallace's division remained at Crump's Landing, but as the rest of the Federal force assembled and encamped on the west bank of the Tennessee at Pittsburgh Landing, Ulysses S. Grant appeared on the scene and took up command of his army once again. In his book, Shiloh, Confederate High Tide in the Heartland, Stephen E. Woodworth explains that, quote, 
On March 17th, two days after Sherman's and Hurlbut's divisions encamped at Pittsburgh Landing, Grant arrived at Savannah to resume command of the Army of the Tennessee. His reinstatement had been a product of two factors. For one, Halleck had received the promotion for which he had been lobbying. Lincoln assigned him to command of all the Union armies west of the Appalachians, including Buell's. Halleck no longer felt as much need to keep Grant suppressed. The other factor came in the form of a dispatch from the Army's adjutant general, Lorenzo Thomas, informing him that the president wanted to know the exact nature and basis of the charges against Grant. It would hardly do for Halleck to write back and tell the president that he had made them up, so, having achieved the command he wanted, Halleck replied that the matter had been cleared up and that Grant was in good standing. Then Halleck restored Grant to command and sent him up the river to catch the army and take over its leadership. End quote. It was good that Grant arrived at Savannah when he did, since by that time C.F. Smith's health was deteriorating rapidly. The gash on his leg had become so badly infected that he was growing weaker by the day. By the time Grant arrived, Smith could barely hobble about and would soon take to his bed. He would die in Savannah on April 25th, less than six weeks after his accident. Once Grant arrived at Savannah, true to his nature, he was eager to take the initiative and move on Corinth, but Halleck refused to give his aggressive subordinate the green light to launch an offensive against the nearby rebels. Halleck remained committed to the plan he had clearly spelled out in the orders he had given Grant when he reinstated him to command. That plan called for Grant to assemble his army there along the Tennessee and then remain idle while Buell marched his army down from Nashville. And then, once John Pope also arrived, after his smaller army had cleared out the Confederates guarding the Mississippi River at New Madrid and Island Number 10, only then would Henry Halleck leave St. Louis and take the field and join the fully assembled Union force and lead the victorious advance on Corinth, thus winning the war in the West for the Union and winning undying fame for himself. To quote Stephen Woodworth again in Shiloh, Confederate High Tide in the Heartland, he writes that, Halleck saw the biggest threat to his program not in Albert Sidney Johnston, but in Ulysses S. Grant, who had to be prevented from launching further aggressive operations until all was in readiness and Halleck was present to direct operations and take credit. His orders to Grant thus stressed above all the importance of not bringing on an engagement with the rebels, and Halleck reiterated the point again and again in his dispatches to Grant. Grant may have been tempted to stretch his orders, but his recent experience of removal from command was enough to remind him of the dangers of falling afoul of Henry Halleck, so his army remained idle as Halleck wished, though still in the camp on the west bank of the Tennessee at Pittsburgh Landing, a location Grant had seen merely as a jumping-off point for the next offensive. The combination of Grant's tactical dispositions with Halleck's strategy offered Albert Sidney Johnston the opportunity he had been seeking since the debacle at Fort Donelson. End quote. In other words, Grant's army was positioned at Pittsburgh Landing with offensive movement in mind. Neither C.F. Smith, who was first on the scene, nor Grant, who arrived later, ever dreamed that the Confederates, who were concentrated nearby at Corinth, 
would actually march north and attack the Union force at Pittsburgh Landing. That short-sightedness, combined with Halleck keeping Grant on a tight leash and Buell's unhurried march from Nashville, provided Albert Sidney Johnston with just the strategic opportunity he needed to strike from Corinth and attempt to defeat the Yankees in detail. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As the month of March 1862 came to a close, Albert Sidney Johnston realized that the window of strategic opportunity he'd been given was drawing to a close, and that the juncture of Buell's and Grant's armies was not far off. On April 2nd, Johnston received word that Buell had finally crossed the Duck River, 45 miles from Nashville. That meant Buell still had 80 miles to go to reach Grant, but the Duck River had been a major obstacle to his advance, and with it behind him, even Buell could be expected to move a little faster now. That same day, April 2nd, Beauregard reported the start of a possible Union offensive from the vicinity of Crump's Landing. In fact, the Federal activity was really just Lew Wallace responding to a clumsily executed Confederate cavalry probe that Beauregard had ordered the day before. But the appearance of aggressiveness among the Yankees, coupled with the knowledge that Buell was approaching, seemed to be all Sidney Johnston needed to get his own offensive underway. He had trained and organized his troops gathered at Corinth as long as he could, a mere nine days. But by the first days of April, Johnston knew that if his army was going to strike first, the time was now. To that end, Johnston issued orders for his men to be ready to move out at six o'clock the next morning, Thursday, April 3rd. According to Johnston's plan, his army would march the 20 or so miles to the vicinity of Pittsburgh Landing that day and launch an attack on the Federals assembled there at dawn on Friday, April 4th. There was no time to write out a detailed warning order for his army, so Johnston conveyed his wishes verbally to his three principal corps commanders, Leonidas Polk, Braxton Bragg, and William J. Hardee. Johnston hurried off a telegram to Richmond, informing Jefferson Davis of the planned attack. Meanwhile, Polk, Bragg, and Hardee were busy preparing their units to march north. We've already met Leonidas Polk on the podcast. He was the Episcopal bishop turned Confederate general who owed his position in the army to the fact that he had been friends with Jefferson Davis when the two were cadets at West Point. Six months after graduation from the military academy, 
Polk had decided to pursue a career in the ministry and resigned his commission. After that, he'd given not a thought to military matters for the next 35 years, but that didn't stop Davis from appointing him one of the South's top generals at the outbreak of the Civil War. In September 1861, in what is viewed by many people as one of the worst decisions of the war, Polk led Confederate forces into the neutral border state of Kentucky and seized Columbus on the Mississippi River, which he then fortified. Polk's rash move not only gave the Federals the excuse they needed to also move into Kentucky, but it pushed the Bluegrass State off the fence and into the Union camp, rendering the Confederacy's defense of Tennessee that much more difficult. And then we've mentioned Braxton Bragg on the podcast, but not talked about him in any detail. But Bragg was born in 1817 and graduated from West Point in 1837. He was commissioned a second lieutenant in the 3rd Artillery Regiment and sent to Florida to participate in the removal of the Seminoles. Bragg's health suffered as a result of the climate and stress, and he spent most of 1838 recovering, but was nonetheless promoted to first lieutenant. He also gained a reputation as a rigid and quarrelsome officer who lacked tact and wasn't shy about making his opinions known. During the war with Mexico, Bragg earned a reputation for his skill in training raw recruits and also for his administrative abilities, and was promoted to captain in 1846. He was also hated by many of the men who served under him, and some of them reportedly threatened to kill him. Nevertheless, Bragg especially distinguished himself as an artillery commander in the battles of Monterey and Buena Vista, earning brevets to major and lieutenant colonel. Following the war, Bragg became dissatisfied with the slow pace of advancement in the peacetime army and resigned his commission in 1856 and purchased a sugar plantation in Louisiana. When Louisiana seceded from the Union in January 1861, Bragg was appointed commander of the state's armed forces. He was then given a brigadier general's commission in the Confederate Army in March and sent over to Pensacola, Florida. He was promoted to major general in September 1861, and following the fall of Forts Henry and Donelson in February 1862, he led his men from the Gulf Coast to join the Confederate Army assembling at Corinth. Johnston's third principal corps commander, William Joseph Hardy, was born in 1815 and graduated from West Point in 1838. He was commissioned a second lieutenant of Dragoons and sent to Europe to study cavalry tactics. Promoted to first lieutenant in 1839 and to captain in 1844, during the Mexican-American War, Hardy served under both Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott. After the war in 1855, he was promoted to major in the new 2nd Cavalry Regiment under Colonel Albert Sidney Johnston and Lieutenant Colonel Robert E. Lee. In that same year, Hardy published a widely acclaimed infantry manual titled Rifle and Light Infantry Tactics for the Exercise and Maneuvers of Troops When Acting as Light Infantry or Riflemen. And since that's quite a mouthful, the book became known simply as Hardy's Tactics, and it became the standard reference guide for training infantry in both the Union and Confederate armies during the Civil War. Hardy served as Commandant of Cadets at West Point from 1856 to 1861, 
but resigned his commission after his home state of Georgia seceded from the Union. He entered Confederate service as a colonel, but was quickly promoted to brigadier general. In October 1861, he was appointed a major general. A thorough trainer, his inexperienced Southern volunteers admired Hardy's ability to turn them into soldiers, and they called him Old Reliable. Despite Johnston having alerted them 24 hours earlier that a march was imminent, Polk, Bragg, and Hardy were far from ready to move on April 3rd. The entire rebel army was too inexperienced, from generals on down to privates. There were too few staff officers to see that orders were carried out. Hours passed while units waited for neighboring formations to move out, or waited for written orders, or suffered delays because they misunderstood the orders that did reach them. As a result, the departure time was pushed back from 6 a.m. to 8, but that hour came and went, and still most of the army remained in its camps around Corinth. Finally, at 3 p.m. Thursday afternoon, Hardy's Corps, slated to lead the advance north, marched out of Corinth. Other units followed, although some didn't leave the town until after daybreak on Friday morning, the hour Sidney Johnston had originally intended to launch his attack on the Yankees up at Pittsburgh Landing. But because of the confusion in getting the army on the road, clearly the Confederate attack wouldn't take place on the 4th. And so late that afternoon, Johnston met with Beauregard and Bragg and officially rescheduled the assault for the morning of Saturday, April 5th. Meanwhile, Johnston had given the task of drawing up specific written orders for the march and the deployment for the attack to Beauregard, and Beauregard, in turn, assigned the job to his chief of staff, Colonel Thomas Jordan. Supposedly keeping a copy of Napoleon's order for the Battle of Waterloo in front of him, Jordan devised a highly complicated plan. Beauregard had previously organized Johnston's army into four corps of unequal size. The first, under Polk, numbered 9,100 men. The second, under Bragg, 13,500. Hardy commanded 6,700 men in the Third Corps, and then 6,400 men were in what Beauregard called the Reserve Corps, commanded by John C. Breckinridge. Breckinridge was a Kentuckian who had no military experience, but who, in 1856, at the age of 35, had been elected vice president, and in 1860 had been the presidential candidate of the Southern Democrats. Jordan's march order called for the four corps to advance from Corinth to the vicinity of Pittsburgh Landing using both of the available dirt roads. That was simple enough, in theory, but Jordan's order addressing the Army's deployment for the attack was bizarre, to say the least. Rather than deploying three of the corps side by side and keeping the fourth in reserve, Jordan's order called for Hardy's corps to form a line of battle stretching across the entire length of the battlefield. Behind it, Bragg's corps would do the same, followed by Polk's. Breckinridge's reserve corps would bring up the rear. So Jordan stacked up the four corps like the layers of a cake. Where he got the idea to do this is still the matter of much speculation, since it certainly wasn't from Napoleon's order for Waterloo or from any of the Emperor's other battles. Nor did the idea to stack up the Corps originate with Sidney Johnston's plan for the battle, since Johnston had explained in a message to Jefferson Davis 
that he intended that Bragg, with his oversized corps, would form the right wing, Hardy the center, and Polk the left. And Johnston intended Bragg to drive back the Union left, nearest the river, and so force the enemy back and then away from Pittsburgh Landing. The whole Yankee army would then have been caught away from the river, where it couldn't escape, in a pocket formed by the swampy bottomland of Snake Creek and Owl Creek. And Johnston's plan was a good one, but unfortunately for the Confederates, Jordan's order for the attack bore no relation whatsoever to Albert Sidney Johnston's plan. Stephen Woodworth explains the problem with Jordan's order. He writes, quote, Whatever its inspiration may have been, the effect of Jordan's order was to compound within Confederate ranks the confusion that always accompanied battle. As soon as the fight grew hot enough to cause the first line to halt, which would occur when the Federals first offered serious resistance, the second and then the third Confederate lines would move up and join the fight with their divisions, brigades, regiments, and even companies intermingled with those of the other lines. Inexperienced soldiers would find themselves fighting alongside units of which they knew nothing and receiving orders from officers they had never seen before. The Corps would cease to exist as maneuver units, and the Confederate Army would become a collection of brigades and regiments. End quote. In other words, since Jordan's orders didn't deploy the Corps side by side, but instead stacked them up one behind the other like the layers of a cake, once the battle got underway, it wouldn't be long before the different layers of the cake became all smashed up together against the Union line, and in the resulting confusion, the rebel corps would lose their e effectiveness as coherent formations on the battlefield. And Jordan has been justly criticized for his orders, but in the end, the buck stops with Albert Sidney Johnston. No one seems to know when exactly Johnston found out about the orders for the deployment and that they bore no relation to his intended plan of attack, that perhaps he didn't find out until it was too late to do anything about it. But whether it was because he confided too much responsibility to Beauregard or because he learned too late to change the orders, the buck stops with Sidney Johnston, since he was in command and he allowed his army to go into a decisive battle in its faulty formation. But before Albert Sidney Johnston's army could go into battle in its faulty formation, it would have to actually get to the neighborhood of the Yankee army Johnston hoped to attack. And at times, even that task seemed beyond the ability of Sidney Johnston and his subordinate officers. Twenty-three road miles separated the Confederate encampments around Corinth from the federal tents pitched around Pittsburgh Landing, and confusion, rain, mud, delays, and more confusion mark the rebel march across those 23 miles. But we'll save that story for next time. With the next episode, we'll follow the rebels as they have to delay the attack yet again. We'll see how Beauregard gets cold feet and wants to call the whole thing off. We'll see how Sidney Johnston was determined the attack would go forward, and we'll discover that when the assault was finally launched on the morning of Sunday, April 6th, the Federals weren't actually as surprised by the surprise Confederate attack as most people think. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. 
and our recommendation this time is Shiloh, Confederate High Tide in the Heartland by Stephen E. Woodworth. This book on Shiloh by Stephen Woodworth is one of the volumes in Prager's Battles and Leaders of the American Civil War series. And probably the best recommendation we can give for this book is to say that although it's just 150 pages long, or 150 pages of narrative, uh, Woodworth does a better job of telling the story of Shiloh in those 150 pages than other books on the battle that are over twice as long. So there you go. And as always, you can find all of our book recommendations by heading over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. So as you may have noticed, uh, Tracy's voice was missing in action throughout most of this episode, and that's because, as you also may have noticed, uh, she sounds terrible, and that's because she's sick again. We haven't mentioned it uh, on the podcast before, but Tracy is a teacher, and so if the kids are passing something around, she has a pretty good chance of catching it too. And this late winter slash early spring seems to have been especially bad with her catching everything. Uh, so she's just really been having a rough time getting completely healthy again. Uh, so that's the story. Um, but thanks for your patience, though. Uh, she's had to take a pass on fully participating in the last couple of episodes. And thanks for your patience and putting up with it just being me through most of those shows. Uh, hopefully very soon we'll get Tracy well again, and you won't have to listen to me so much. Sorry, y'all. And just a couple of things as we wrap up this episode. First of all, we have a couple of new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank, uh, Tim, John, and another individual who wished to remain anonymous, so we're honoring that. But they know who they are, and they're also included in this thank you. And as far as the members' episodes, we have finished up the shows on Abraham Lincoln, and now we're going to move on to Robert E. Lee and look at the time that he spent in charge of the Confederate coastal defenses on the South Atlantic seaboard during late 1861 and early 1862. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, so that's for members of the Strawfoot Brigade. Uh, everyone, though, can follow us on f Twitter and Facebook, and on Facebook, we're in the midst of daily posts titled The Road to Appomattox Courthouse. And in them, we're following the dramatic events as they unfolded 150 years ago that uh, led up to the surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia on the afternoon of April 9th, 1865. And there are handy links to our Twitter feed and Facebook page at the podcast website, uh, which once again is civilwarpodcast.org. And that's also where you can register to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade. And just a reminder that you do that by signing up through PayPal to make recurring payments of $5 a month, and that gives you access to the two extra episodes that Tracy and I uh, are doing each month. And for those of you who have already done that, uh, thank you. Thank you. Tracy and I truly uh, appreciate your support and encouragement. Thanks, y'all. Uh, okay, that's uh, it for this show. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with the next installment in the Shiloh storyline. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.